0: Welcome to a special edition of the Get More Smarter Podcast. We got a chance to talk with former Governor John Hickenlooper, now a candidate for U.S. Senate in Colorado, We talk to him about what it's like to campaign in the age of coronavirus and a whole bunch of other topics. Take a listen. Well, we're happy to welcome back to the show, Governor John Hickenlooper, who is campaigning and quarantined in a secret location. Uh, how are things, Governor? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, as everybody is is coming to grips with this, understands that being isolated in your home is is frustrating in many cases. But it's you know, in the in the universe of sacrifice, it's uh, it's a small comparison to people that are hospitalized people that are in some cases dying you know families going through the worst traumas of their lives small businesses that are going to have a hard time figuring out how do they come back into business
0: how do you campaign during a period like this what is your your daily schedule like in terms of how it used to be so we're 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 campaigning from home and
1: uh You know, it's not I mean, it's not the same as campaigning where you in normal times where you can bring people together and create energy and get people excited and, you know, really motivate them to go out and work hard. It's a different set of of uh, different set of facts and different set of of circumstances when you're when you're using Zoom or or Skype or, you know, any of the, uh, you know, the technology things to bring people together and talk. It's just not it doesn't have the same energy. Right. Uh, but we also have to spend more time understanding the real granular reality of what this crisis is doing to people's lives in Colorado and to really understand, you know, how we got to this point point, in what ways did the White House or or the other institutions in Washington, in what ways did they play a part in, in exaggerating and making a, this was clearly a natural Disaster, but but making it worse, and and then I think you know more and more people want are going to want hope, and they're going to want to understand how we're going to get out of this crisis. What, how do we transition back to some semblance of a new normal? And I don't hear any of that coming out of Washington. Actually, I, I see I hear very little uh, acceptance of responsibility of how we got here, and I hear essentially no uh, plans or, or, or realistic, uh, pathways by which we can get back to, you know, people getting jobs and rejoining the economy, you know, people being able to walk into a strip mall and get, get their hair cut or buy a pair of shoes.
0: Well, that's gotta be even, even tougher for, for politicians. How how do you cut your hair? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, up until
1: I was, uh, uh, 15 years old, my mother cut my hair, um, and, and, uh, if you go back and look at pictures of me when I was a child, she wasn't an accomplished hair cutter. Uh, <laughs> you know, she did the best she could. Uh, I think we're all going to end up cutting our own hair you know, and, and doing the best we can. There's, uh, you can go online. And there are little classes that will show you. I have not done that yet, but I think we're, that, that,
0: that prospect is not far away. <laughs> well, when you do do it, make sure, please, someone records it so we can, we can see the video. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You dealt with many public crises when you were governor, from fires to floods, mass shootings. Can you give us some perspective on what it's like to be the person in charge at a time like this?
1: Well, it's you know, that my first four years as governor. So from 2011 to 2015, I went to 34 funerals. So we wow. had the worst wildfires in the state's history. We had the worst flood in the state's history. We had uh, the shooting in the Aurora Movie Theater and several other shootings and And when you're in a a sequence of of disasters or a, a, a huge disaster, like the one we're in right now, at times it feels like you're never going to come out of it. And I think that you know when I was a kid my my mom was uh, my mom was widowed twice before she was forty, so she raised four kids by herself, and she never complained, and she'd tell us you can't control what life throws at you, but you can control whether it makes you better or worse, stronger or weaker. And I think that I tried to, when we were in these disasters and I'd go to these funerals, I'd meet, I'd meet family after family that was going through the worst experience of their life. So many parents who'd lost kids, either in shootings or in the flood. There were a couple of tragic stories in the wildfires, uh, kids who didn't come back from Iraq or Afghanistan who were part of our National Guard. In every case, you try to just be there and listen to people and, and, and provide empathy some sense that they're not in this alone, and that their, their their loved one who they've lost will not be forgotten, and that's another thing we're not seeing any of that coming out from Washington, uh, and I think that's you know that's government malpractice. One of the things that people in a in a crisis like this need more than anything else is is for the the leaders of the country to step up, and I think I think Governor Polis is doing a good job in the state of Colorado. I think he's working aggressively to begin trying to think of what what will what will be a transition back into an economy he's been very empathetic for the people that have lost uh loved ones or or businesses uh i mean he's like in a microcosm showing what president trump is, it seems to be incapable of doing right uh providing real leadership
0: did you find that there were common threads in responding to different types of public emergencies?
1: Yeah, I think that,
0: well, that, uh, I mean, there's
1: always, you know, the first thing you have to do is deal with the reality of the people where they are, right? And you can't wander around saying, God, I wish this had happened, or I wish that had happened. People are in, in the middle of a, of a natural disaster. They are in, in their own particular crisis. Their own personal crisis, and you've got to be where they are. You've got to go to them. You've got to find whether it's housing or food or or support, medical uh, medical service services. You, you have to be where they are, uh, and that's you know you just that that's a thread that connects pretty much all disaster response. You also want to try and as you as you're working through the the broad issues around a natural disaster, and as you begin to rebuild you want to rebuild better than you were before people aren't going to be satisfied. If you say, well, we're just going to get back to what we had before this crisis. Uh, and that's, that's what resiliency is, is, is making sure that the next crisis, the next natural disaster we have, we're better prepared, we're better prepared than we were for this one. And that's again, Obama. I mean, Obama came out here twice. He came out after the Waldo Canyon fire. And then a month later, he came out for the, after the shooting in the Aurora movie theater and he he told me, I asked him how could he do it because he would go and and go from family to family we'd be in a large room after the shooting and he said that that' part of a of his job is to be consoler in chief mm. uh, and he was he was brilliant at it um, at, at making people feel that their pain and and loss mattered and, and that they were heard um, anyway, I think that that's that as you again deal with the, the loss and and, and 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 rebuild the infrastructure that Obama put in place having been through all those disasters was what President Trump to a large extent dismantled right on the National Security Council, Obama realized that national security isn't just about intelligence and military strength National security is about having resilience in place for all kinds of things and they specifically had made serious planning and had you know reserves and preparations for a pandemic like what we're seeing and that was you know to a large extent the they had the 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 new people coming in under president trump uh had to create new plans and they thought this is a waste of money having this, this this stockpiled or that stockpiled and they didn't need this group of people on the national security council and in in hindsight I mean, clearly those were terrible, terrible mistakes, terrible miscalculations that, you know, I think that's part of the reason why President Trump and his staff, to a large extent, ignored uh, the reality of uh, that this was a crisis that could hit the United States very hard. And, and they just kind of kept poo-pooing it, really, all, almost through February. And it's just, you know, r- Republican senators who had actually been selling their stock, uh, Right. in anticipation of a sell-off. And yet at the same time, they were going out and set, telling people that, uh, you know, we'll get through this. It's not going to be a big deal. Don't don't worry yourself. It's, again, malpractice. <laughs> malpractice.
0: One of the, uh, speaking of the infrastructure created uh, under President Obama, the, the Affordable Care Act. In, in, in 2017, you were one of five governors who went to Capitol Hill that Testifying on, on bolstering the exchanges. You played a big role in lobbying the Senate not to repeal the ACA. What, what do you remember most about that time?
1: Well, it's funny. I I, I was at a dinner party um, right after, uh, I think it was the week after President Trump got inaugurated, uh, maybe it was two weeks after the inauguration. Uh, and Sylvia Burwell, who'd been at the head of the budget office for a while, and then she took over when Kathleen Sebelius stepped down as the head of health and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, Sylvia Burwell stepped in, and she was amazing. And she's the one who she took me aside and said, "You realize uh, uh, that the Republicans are going to go full tilt to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and they have nothing to take its place." And I was incredulous. I said, "No, no, they're just talking about it, but they won't do that." She goes, "No, no, I have it on good authority." And then she looked at me and she says, "You know some of the Republicans and some of the Democrats in the, in the Governors Association." You might be the one that, that can get both Republicans and Democrats to go back to the senators and say, "Hey, we governors are the ones that have to implement these plans." And while the Affordable Care Act certainly is not perfect, we we cannot even think about repealing it because of what it would do to the the coverage of our of our community. And so, you know, that was the the the, the beginning, the impetus. Uh, and I finally got uh, I couldn't find a, a a moderate Republican governor who was willing to go against the whole party and go against the new president until I got to John Kasich, uh, who was still the governor of Ohio. He'd run for president against Trump, and he had expanded Medicaid in Ohio, even though he's a Republican, and he saw how important it was. Uh, And I got him on the phone, and, and we had a couple conversations over several days, and we agreed that we would join forces, and together we would recruit the other governors. Uh, and we would march on Washington and we'd go to the National Press Club and we would appeal to all the, 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 the Senate to say, hey, we're the ones who understand this better than you ever will. We see it on the ground and, and what it means. And if you're, if you're willing to listen, here are the ways we think we can improve it and, and, and actually lower the cost of the federal government and, and increase and improve the coverage. Uh, and, of course, you know, well, if you remember, it was every, everybody went crazy and it was how could we do this? And the, the, ultimately, in the end, uh, if you remember, John McCain yeah. asked the deciding uh-huh. vote to make sure it wasn't repealed. And three days before that, he was being asked some questions from a local uh, TV station, I think it was, in, in, in Arizona. And he said, we have to look to the governors because they're the ones who actually implement this. And he repeated a couple of of mine and and, and especially John Kasich's comments almost verbatim. Uh, But he said, you know, we need to talk to our governors. And it was interesting because the governor of Arizona at that time was in favor of repealing the Affordable Care Act. So I think it's clear that Senator McCain was was referring to Kasich and myself and the other. By this time, I think we had eight uh, uh, Republican and Democratic governors all standing behind, you know, protecting the Affordable Care Act. Uh, And then, you know, a couple days later after those comments, John McCain cast that deciding vote. Uh, And he, the word is that he, that he told several people that he thought it was one of the most important votes he ever cast. Uh, And I think, you know, that's what, that's what courage is all about. That's what leadership demands, is the willingness to make a hard decision against the party that you've loved your whole life. When they're on the wrong path, you've got to be willing to step up and, and say something about it. And that's what we're, clearly not seeing from Republican senators now, not one of them, are willing to come forward and say, hey, maybe we've made a mistake. We should, we should not pursue this lawsuit to dismantle the Affordable Care Act again.
0: Uh, Senator Cory Gardner, is, uh, who, who you may end up facing in, in the, the fall election for Senate, is a supporter of the lawsuit to dismantle the, the ACA. What do you remember about conversations you had with him at the time? Um, they were brief, <laughs> you know, it, was, uh, it was not something that, that he was going to budge on. Um,
1: you know he 's a strong believer that you know, these are cert- certain sacred values of you know what the Constitution means and, and I think if that's true, if you're going to say that your values are so so precious and that your, your interpretation of the Constitution is so absolute and you're so certain that it's that important that it's going to cost. You know, if we got rid of the Affordable Care Act, there's no question in Colorado it would, it would cost thousands of people their lives. And here we are in a health crisis, in a pandemic, and they're still pursuing this lawsuit. He should come forward and discuss it and and, and explain exactly what those values are that his interpretation of you know the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act that that it is so sacred that he won't even consider it. Uh, you know postponing it for a year or two, if it's so sacred, to make sure that, uh, that, that lives aren't lost needlessly. And you know that's one of those things that I don't know how he's going to, unless he's going to change and, and actually support the Affordable Care Act, I don't know how he navigates that because there's, there's no question that if, we, if, if that lawsuit succeeds in several unbelievably powerful ways, uh, the state of
0: Colorado will be worse off. I mean, a lot worse off. We saw him take this same kind of position recently. On uh, About 10 days ago, he voted for the largest spending bill in the history of Congress. When he first ran for, for Congress against Betsy Markey in 2010, it was all about stimulus is bad, stimulus is bad. What was your reaction to him just totally switching like this? Well, I
1: mean, what <laughs> I could not understand how he could say that about the stimulus back then, except that clearly it was the only thing that they'd polled that worked. So he went to it and he went back to it and went back to it and went back to it. I can't believe he really believed it. I mean, maybe he did. I don't know. But it's to say that that stimulus, you know, that you don't need on when you have the threat and the very real potential of, of a depression, right? That You know, a multi-year perhaps as long as a decade of high unemployment and almost no job growth or no wage growth or no economic growth, and you're willing to accept that because you are holding on to some constitutional interpretation, uh, again, it, 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 I can't believe anybody would would really think that, and clearly Cory Gardner in this case didn't, and I'm sure he's got a lot of arguments on why this is a different circumstance and a different situation. Um, you know, it's a natural disaster and not caused by banks or I don't know something like that. But what you're talking about is people's lives in both cases. And, you know, I think the the, the same thing that he he'll he'll have a good explanation or I'm not sure the good explanations. He'll have a, uh, uh, an explanation of why he didn't think that we should have witnesses in the impeachment trial. Right. And I'm sure he'll be one of the people that probably is going to blame uh, the impeachment. Uh, process with the fact that we were, you know, that the White House and our entire, you know, Washington institutions, that all the Washington institutions were asleep at the wheel when this pandemic started. And as it began to spread across the the world,
0: no one was, uh, no one was willing to do it, willing to speak out. You know, we asked you earlier about how to, what it's like the campaign for office when everyone is staying at home. What, what do you say to people who, who are listening to this or, or elsewhere around who, who want to help the campaign, but they're stuck at home? What can they do? Well, we're, pri- we're trying to, to build up networks
1: and, and look at how you use teleconferencing and uh, teleconferencing. Your, your and, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, trying, <laughs> I'm trying to, uh, you know, this is the classic problem. Somebody calls you back, and you've been trying to get a hold of them for weeks. That's okay. That, that's how that's I, how I, it works. I'm staying on the. I'm staying on the interview. Um, <laughs> uh, we're trying to build networks and get people to to reach out to their friends and neighbors, and just give them the basic the, the facts of the case of how we again how we got here, um, how we're going to get out of here, uh, and 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 what that means about our political system. In other words, what should we want in uh, a U.S. senator representing Colorado? And obviously, once, once we can get the, the network together, and we're doing this, I mean, pretty rapidly, people don't have to be persuaded, uh, or at least many people don't need a lot of persuasion to recognize that, that we deserve better than someone who's always going to support Donald Trump through thick and thin. Uh, he's always going to support Donald Trump. That's not what made this country. Right.
0: Before I let you go and get 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 to those ringing phones, we've been asking all of our guests to recommend a, a TV show, a movie, a book, something they they can turn to for entertainment while they're stuck at home. Other than Tiger King, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> um, you know, uh,
1: my sister, and you get a kick out of this. This is this is a little bit on the you know the SAT uh, kind of intellectual side, but there's a, a series that came out, I think it's a six-part series, uh, Masterpiece Theater, called Wolf Hall. And it's about, uh, it's, a, it's a historical uh, drama, dramatization about Thomas Cromwell uh, and in the time of Henry VIII in England. But it is a brilliant, I mean, it's so gripping. And it's, it's about how political power works uh, in that time, but, but in this time, uh, the book, I'll tell you, uh, what's her name? Uh, Ariel Will W I L L Will and Ariel Durant uh, were famous, famous historians in the throughout the middle part of the 20th century. So from like 1940 to 1980, they wrote all these histories of of Egypt, of 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 Mesopotamia, of the Roman Empire, of you know the the Reformation. I mean they would spend two or three years and they would write the definitive history. And at the end of their careers, they wrote a couple of very short books. And I've been reading this one uh called that's that's really, really interesting, called Lessons from History by Will and Ariel Durant. And it really gets into, you know, some of the greater the 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 great dynamic tensions that the world has always dealt with. Like capitalism versus socialism or democracy versus authoritarianism and, and what the relationships are that give rise to transitions in, in how people think about these things. Uh, it's really fascinating. And it's, you know, each, each, they're like little essays. Each one's like three pages or four pages long. So for those of us that are very slow readers, uh,
0: <laughs> they're bite-sized chunks. Well, Governor, I know you've got a lot to do. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us uh, is there anything else that uh, we missed on that you want to make sure we touch on? No, I, you know, the one thing that does bother me and has bothered me kind of all
1: as we've seen this is that in many cases, the federal government is not doing what it needs to do to help the governors and the states. And this, the states are asking for, for you know, the, the infrastructure of, of health care and making sure that we have enough PPE. And while governors are clamoring for more of this PPE, you know, the president saying, well, you're going to have to do it yourself and, and basically starts a bidding war between governors, which is nuts. And then we find out that now that the, the U.S. has been exporting, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of this uh, stuff. Uh, and in many cases, it reminds me of back when we had our own disasters and, and oftentimes the federal government was, you know, you had to really bend them. They would they would not pick up the ball uh, when you needed them. Uh, in many cases, and I remember after Estes Park had the horrible flood, and we were trying to uh get it reopened. And that was—you remember—they had the big government shutdown right there at the end of October. Yeah. And that was when everyone was coming to Rocky Mountain National Park to see the leaves change. We had finally gotten all the muck and the mud out of all the small businesses in Estes Park, and they were ready to reopen. And then the the, the federal government was going to shut down the park. Um, and so, I mean, luckily we did get the the uh, Secretary of the Interior. Was reasonable. I called her on a on a Friday night, six o'clock Colorado time, so it was eight o'clock her time, and she was still in her office, and she was uh, she was getting stuff done. I was just leaving Estes Park, and she agreed to let if 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 the state of Colorado would pay the salaries for the workers in Estes, in, in the in Rocky Mountain National Park, she would allow the park to stay open. Which and she got that done by ten o'clock the next morning. We had uh, authority and permission, and so instead of shutting down on uh, on Sunday, it, it, we kept it open. That's the kind of stuff where you've got to, you know, when the federal government's getting in your way and making things worse, you've got to have ways where they will step in and, and make things better. And I, I don't see that happening in this crisis in the same way that they did uh, after we had that flood.
0: Well, good thing we've got an election coming up. Uh, Governor, thanks for your time. Have, uh, be safe out there and, and good luck on the campaign trail. You too, Jason. Thanks so much.